Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Tuesday, February the 6th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here's our first story from the Mason City Globe Gazette. It's entitled 2024 Band Fest, Rewind to the 80s. North Iowa Band Fest sets 2024 theme for Memorial Day weekend. It's written by Alexander Schmidt. The 85th annual North Iowa Band Festival will rewind the clock back to a time of big hair, bold styles, and unforgettable music, the 1980s. Dig out that old jean jacket and dust off your leg warmers. You're going to need them for a totally tubular time over Memorial Day weekend in Mason City, said a post from Mason City Chamber President Colin Frein, along with a delightfully danceable promotional video featuring familiar chamber businesses as they prepare for a weekend of great tunes. In a press release, the theme for the 2024 Band Fest was announced as 80s Rewind, paying tribute to the decade that brought us Michael Jackson, Madonna, U2, Phil Collins, and much more. The 85th annual event is anticipated this year to draw thousands of music lovers for a loud and joyous week-long celebration of the area's rich musical heritage. The parade, the weekend's highlight, is scheduled for 10 a.m. Saturday, May 25th. The parade starts at North Pennsylvania, Iowa, and East State Street, then follows East Street to Mason City High School. If there is inclement weather, the parade will be delayed in 30-minute increments up until 11.30 a.m. Parade entries are eligible for the Grand Marshall Award, given for the best use of the North Iowa Band Festival theme based on originality, public appeal, craftsmanship, craftsmanship slash artistic quality and the Mr. Toot Award for best use of any theme based on originality, public appeal, craftsmanship slash artistic quality. Musical performances and merchandise are chosen with the theme in mind and parade floats are encouraged to utilize the theme in their design. So make plans to attend the parade today, states the release. The weekend's festivities will all will also will feature a carnival concessions, a wide range of musical performances, and the marketplace, all centrally located in downtown Mason City's Central Park. Entry forms and online registration for parade entries is now available through the Mason City Chamber of Commerce's website. The marketplace is scheduled from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. Friday, May 24th, and 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Saturday, May 25th, and 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. Sunday. First held in 1928, the North Iowa Band Festival is the region's signature annual event. It is the largest free marching band competition in the Midwest. Tourism-related expenditures contributed an estimated $136.8 million into Mason City's economy in 2018. In Cerro Gordo County, tourism generated an estimated $214.46 million in visitor spending, a record for the county and the 11th highest county level in the state. Tourism-related jobs employed nearly 1,570 people in Cerro Gordo County, according to the Chamber of Commerce data. The weekend's full schedule will be released on the North Iowa Band Festival's website when finalized in the coming weeks. The Chamber has also created an online sign-up option for volunteer opportunities. The release added, The committee is busy securing marching bands from the region, booking musical acts for the main stage, and preparing for an abundance of totally tubular parade entries. Parade placement is taken on a first-come, first-served basis, so if your organization wants to be toward the front of the parade, be sure to get your entry form in as soon as possible. 
Parade entry forms can be picked up at the Commerce Center or found online at www.nibandfest.com. Businesses, organizations, and community members are encouraged to participate. And in the other story on the front page of the Globe Gazette, mother convicted in death of baby starving his twin. April sentencing could carry maximum 50 years in prison. Also written by Alexander Schmidt, a Plymouth woman has been found guilty in the death of her baby and, a, for, and of seriously neglecting his twin in Cerro Gordo County District Court on Monday. Alyssa Marie Joyce, age 30, also known as Alyssa Luke, was convicted of one count of child endangerment resulting in death and another of child endangerment resulting in injury after her two-and-a-half-month-old twins were found malnourished in 2021. A tearful Joyce was seen mouthing the words, I'm sorry, to her family after the verdict was read. Joyce was found by the jury to have deprived nutrition to two two-and-a-half-month-old children to the point that it caused one infant's death and left the other near death. In Iowa, felony charges related to endangerment causing the death of a child carry a maximum penalty of 50 years in prison. The jury returned a unanimous guilty verdict on both counts after deliberating for a little over an hour. The the count of child endangerment resulting in death of Abel Luke and the count of child endangerment resulting in serious injury of Brendan Luke. Joyce blames the state for the child's death. She has filed a civil suit against the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services and its contracted counseling agencies, Families First Counseling, Mid-Iowa Family Therapy, and Lutheran Social Services, alleging negligence in caring for the infant. The father, Scott Luke, has also filed pro se suits in the matter. According to court records, the father assaulted the mother December the 8th, 2020, while she was pregnant. This caused her to go into labor, and she gave birth to the twins. Human Services staff sought temporary removal of the children, and they were adjudicated to be children in need of assistance under Iowa law. They were placed with the mother and subject to Department of Human Services supervision under a plan the mother agreed to, according to the mother's lawsuit. Family members were ordered to participate in services. In February 2021, one of the twins, a son identified as Abel Luke, died of malnutrition. The other twin, previously only identified as BL, was treated for severe malnutrition, and the other children in the home were found to be underweight and also hospitalized, according to court records. The remaining four children were removed from the mother's custody and placed with the Department of Human Services. The mother participated in DHS services and got back together with the father. Visitation with the children was described as semi-supervised. But in April 2022, the father was arrested for again assaulting the mother, according to court records. The father's rights were terminated in October 2022, according to court records. In February 2023, authorities charged the mother with child endangerment in connection with the 2021 death of Abel Luke. She was released on bond in June, pending trial. A Department of Human Services worker had concerns about the man the mother was living with at the time, records state. Later that month, the man allegedly set fire to the house, court records state. The termination trial for the mother was set for July 2023, and a DHS case manager testified that the home was neither safe nor appropriate as it did not have floors in some places, and there were items piled up around the home. A juvenile court judge terminated her parental rights. 
The parents' divorce was finalized in September of 2023, and as part of the decree, the two were to split Abel's cremated remains. The mother's lawsuit alleges the Department of Human Services and its contract providers negligently cared for Abel, failed to timely transfer him to a higher level of care, and failed to notify his doctor and family about changes in his condition. The suit alleges the defendants failed to properly train staff and failed to properly monitor the child. The mother is also seeking damages for loss of consortium. The father's pro se suit, which requests $61 million in damages, alleges the DHS reports from home visits found an odor of animal urine and feces on the floor. Once a five-year-old was seen playing with toys, cars on a lit stovetop, the suit alleges. Notably, nothing was done to ensure any of my children's safety until my child, Abel Luke, was found unresponsive in a car seat, the father's suit states. The father stated Abel was 5 pounds 3 ounces when he was born in December of 2020. He was 5 pounds 7 ounces almost three months later when he was found unresponsive, according to the father's lawsuit. The father's suit alleges the autopsy found marks on the child's skin from the car seat buckle, and police didn't locate a single baby bottle in the home. Attorneys for Families First and Lutheran Services responded in court records that the damages in part were caused by Joyce's conduct, neglect, and reckless behavior. It was an illegal act committed by plaintiff which caused or contributed to the basis for plaintiff's claim, and plaintiff is thus barred from receiving any financial benefit from such an illegal act, attorneys for the agencies wrote in court records. Joyce is scheduled to be sentenced in Cerro Gordo County District Court at 11.30 a.m. April 8th. Joyce's civil trial is set for June of 2025. Next is an article entitled, Iowa Set Ethanol Record in 2023, Fuel Group Says. Annual ethanol production in Iowa reached a new peak last year of 4.6 billion gallons, according to data compiled by the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. Given relatively stable ethanol demand over the last few years, it was a pleasant surprise to crunch the numbers and find Iowa ethanol producers again increase production, said Monty Shaw, the association's executive director. Last year's estimated production continued a modest upward trend in recent years at the state's 42 ethanol plants. Total production was 4.4 billion gallons in 2021 and 4.5 billion in 2022. Those figures are substantially higher than the production levels of 2020 when the coronavirus pandemic led to a dramatic decrease in the demand for fuel. Ethanol that is blended with gasoline is the dominant fuel for passenger vehicles in the United States. In the year 2020, the state's ethanol plants produced about 3.7 billion gallons. Demand for Iowa ethanol has the potential to increase in future years if restrictions on the summertime sale of E15, a gasoline blend that is 15% ethanol, are permanently lifted, Shaw said. We also have the opportunity to unlock a new market, sustainable aviation fuel, that can drive massive biofuels growth for the next three decades, he said. Reducing the carbon dioxide emissions that result from ethanol production is important to reach that market, and 25 ethanol plants intend to connect to a sprawling carbon dioxide pipeline system that is under consideration by state regulators. Capturing and sequestering the greenhouse gas at the ethanol plants would result in their fuels being classified as low carbon. That would also enable those producers to sell low carbon fuel markets domestically and abroad. 
More than half of the corn Iowa farmers produce is used to make ethanol each year. The association also reported that the state's biodiesel production last year held roughly steady at about 350 million gallons. Most of that fuel is made from soybean oil. CLB&T Sailing Club returns. Clear Lake Bank and Trust announced in a press release its Clear Sailing Club will make a return in this year along with some familiar faces. After a long COVID-related pause, the Clear Sailing Club, formerly known as the Clear Sailing 55 Club, is going to be offering numerous local day trips, a mystery trip, and movie days this year. CLBNT's recent retirees, Sue Finnegan and Joy Olson, will be returning to CLBNT to work alongside Christy Preeb on reconnecting with past club members, signing up new members, and hosting several events and activities for the group. There will be a variety of local event opportunities as well as day travel adventures available, the release said. For more information on activities, membership criteria, and how you can get involved in CLB&T's Clear Sailing Club, visit www.clearlakebank.bank. And Clear Lake cancels 2024 Color of the Wind Festival. Poor ice conditions on Clear Lake has prompted the cancellation of the city's annual kite festival, Color the Wind. Unseasonably warm temperatures this winter have been a detriment to wintertime lake activities as the ice continues to be unsafe for use. The event, which was scheduled for Saturday, February the 17th, was called off on Monday in a press release from the Clear Lake Chamber of Commerce. While we are disappointed by the cancellation of our 2024 Color the Wind Kite Festival, we want to remind visitors of the other wonderful experiences Clear Lake has to offer. The festival is a cherished event, but it's just one of many reasons to visit our vibrant town, said Clear Lake Area Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Stacy Doofman in a statement. We encourage everyone to explore the historic surf ballroom, immerse yourself in our love, lively music scene, discover unique shopping options, and enjoy local restaurants. These activities not only offer memorable experiences, but also provide vital support to our businesses, especially during the winter season. Clear Lake is a destination full of history and alive with opportunity, regardless of the season, and we look forward to welcoming you, she said. The festival was canceled in 2013 and 2017 due to poor ice conditions, and again in 2021 due to a changing of hands of the event's organizers. The release also announced that the next Kite Festival will be held Saturday, February 15, 2024. The event, which features hundreds of giant, high-flying kites with handlers from around the country, is a two-decade-old staple of Clear Lake held each winter and typically draws crowds of all ages numbered in the thousands. Now we come to a story entitled, Charles City Bridal Boutique Relocates. Move marks a significant expansion for Mara, specializing in luxury. There's a new location for Mara, a top-tier bridal boutique in Charles City, which aims to redefine the bridal dress shopping experience. Its new location in a historic corner building on Main Street is complete with a picturesque view of the Cedar River and downtown Charles City. Mara has become a Midwest destination, reads a press release from the business, drawing brides from vast distances, including Minneapolis, Chicago, and Des Moines. The boutique's commitment to excellence and personalized service has garnered a loyal following, making it a sought-after destination for brides seeking a touch of metropolitan luxury in the serene landscapes of Charles City. 
Originally opening in 2018, the move marks a significant expansion for Mara, transitioning from a small boutique to a much larger historic building on Main Street that has been meticulously renovated. Tiffany Roddinghouse, a formal wear specialist and the owner of Mara, expressed her excitement about the new move, stating, Our new location allows us to elevate the bridal experience to new heights. Roddinghouse said her business takes pride in offering a second-to-none bridal experience, aiming to deliver individualized and unmatched service to every bride-to-be who walks through its doors. The boutique also caters to a broad demographic, from the price-conscious shopper to those seeking high-end designer dresses. As someone who takes great pride in our small town and community, I wanted to create something that enhances our main street and brings more shoppers to Charles City. Rural communities alike are trying to find their relevance to curb the decline in population and deteriorating amenities. In growing Mara's footprint, I hope to become even more successful while adding something to our community. Maybe even entice other local entrepreneurs to do the same, Roddinghouse said. Mara is located at 103 North Main Street. Booking information can be found at marabrides.com. And Mara is M-A-R-A. Our next article is entitled, Sac County Directs Funds to Bolster Reward for Missing Wall Lake Trucker. This is written by Mason Doctor. Sac's County Board of Supervisors last week voted unanimously to use $25,000 of American Rescue Plan funds for the reward for information leading to David Schultz, the missing Wall Lake, Iowa trucker. The reward money will be available through November due to ARP regulations, according to Sac County Board minutes posted online. Sac County Supervisor James Whistler made the motion at the request of Sac County Sheriff Ken McClure and Sac County Attorney Ben Smith. Whistler's motion was seconded by Supervisor Ronell Drake. Schultz, a 53-year-old married father of 10-year-old twin boys, vanished before Thanksgiving. He was last heard from in the early morning hours of November the 21st, according to the Lakeview Police Department. Schultz's red Peterbilt semi with white stripes was found the afternoon of November 21st, parked in the middle of the northbound lane of County Road N14, not far from where it intersects with D15 in northeastern Sac County. The trailer he rents was loaded with pigs, but Schultz was nowhere to be found on that stretch of paved roadway, which is flanked by cornfields. A number of farms are visible from all directions along the with wind turbines several miles off to the east. President Joe Biden signed a $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act in 2021 to give aid during the COVID-19 pandemic. The funding was distributed to cities and counties throughout the country with guidelines on how it was to be used. Sac County received a little under $1.9 million in American Rescue Plan funds. Under the terms of the act, Sac County is allowed to use the entirety of its American Rescue Plan funds in nearly whatever manner it chooses, as long as those uses could be deemed government services. This is because the U.S. Treasury Department allows governments to claim up to $10 million of revenue losses even if actual losses were less and recipients are permitted to use up to that amount to fund government services. The Sac County attorney and the supervisors could not be reached by phone Wednesday. Senate panel okays K-12 school funding bill as decline nears. This is written by Robin Opsall of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. 
Republican senators move forward with this year's state supplemental aid bill providing funding for Iowa's K-12 schools without specifying how much money they will provide. A three-member subcommittee passed Senate Study Bill 3122 Thursday on a two-to-one vote along party lines. The legislature is quickly nearing its self-imposed deadline to pass per-pupil state aid for Iowa's K-12 schools within 30 days of the release of the governor's budget. It may be difficult for lawmakers to meet that deadline this year. February 8th will mark 30 days since Governor Reynolds released her budget proposal. Education advocates urged senators to pass this year's SSA bill as soon as possible so that Iowa school districts can complete their budgets. School districts need to be able to set their budgets, Michelle Johnson with the Iowa Association of School Boards said. The deadline is even, you know, sooner this year based on the property tax bill from last year. The school districts had to submit information to the Department of Management by March 15th, so they would really prefer to know their SSA rate as soon as possible. Last year, lawmakers raised funding for SSA by 3%, one-half percent point higher than Governor Kim Reynolds' and state Republicans' proposed 2.5 percent increase. Reynolds' fiscal year 2025 budget proposal also includes a 2.5 percent SSA increase. Reynolds has proposed increasing teacher salaries as well and changing how the state manages and funds area education agencies that provide special education services and other assistance to public schools. Melissa Peters, representing the Iowa State Education Association, said educators recommend a minimum 4% increase in per-pupil state aid for the upcoming year. We have so many different conversations going around this capital, the AEA component, the compensation component, the maybe $10 million merit-based grant that was mentioned in the governor's condition of the state, all of the things, Peters said. But we do know the one thing we absolutely need is a SSA amount that will allow us to sustain Iowa programming, staffing, etc. of all of our schools. Senator Lynn Evans, a Republican from Aurelia, said in an interview after the subcommittee meeting that the Shell Bill is a way to get the ball rolling on passing SSA for the upcoming school year, but that other education proposals like the governor's proposed proposal to modify area education agencies may affect funding rates. As we start addressing some of these education bills and other bills that have price tags, that's going to have an effect on the total education appropriations budget, Evans said. But you know, the governor has made her recommendation 2.5%. That's the starting point for negotiation. And as we settle some of these other things, I'm anticipating that number will change. In state news, Reynolds plans Iowa's third deployment to Texas border. She expresses doubt Congress will pass immigration legislation. This is written by Aaron Murphy of the Lee Gazette Des Moines Bureau. After a weekend trip to Texas, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds said Monday she plans to, for a third time, send Iowa law enforcement officials to assist Texas authorities with security efforts at the U.S.-Mexico border. During a news conference Monday at the Iowa Capitol, Reynolds repeated her criticism of how Democratic President Joe Biden has enforced federal immigration laws and cast doubt that Congress would be able to pass border security legislation. She traveled to Eagle Pass, Texas on Sunday to join Texas Governor Greg Abbott along with 12 other Republican governors at a news conference where she did not speak. 
Back Monday in Iowa, Reynolds said she is working with Texas authorities to once again send Iowa State Patrol officers and Iowa National Guard troops to aid Texas authorities with border security efforts. For three years, Texas has been on the front line of the most serious national security and humanitarian crisis of our time, and Governor Abbott has led the response, Reynolds told reporters Monday. Having no option but to protect itself, Texas is enforcing the law by denying illegal entry and detaining those who attempt it. If the federal government won't do the job protecting Americans, the states will step in. Reynolds said other states' assistance to Texas is needed because the federal government has not sufficiently addressed historic spikes in illegal immigrant crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border. She attributed increases in fentanyl seizures, drug overdose deaths, and human trafficking to illegal immigration issues. The details of the pending deployment are still being worked out with Texas authorities, Reynolds said. It will be the third time Reynolds has deployed Iowans to assist Texas authorities with border security. In 2021, she dispatched 30 Iowa State Patrol officers. Last year, Reynolds sent 31 Iowa State Patrol officers and 109 Iowa National Guard troops for separate one-month deployments. The pending mission will again be funded by federal pandemic relief funding from the American Rescue Plan that Biden signed into law in 2021 and Reynolds opposed. Last year's deployment cost $2 million, according to the governor's office. The governor's office had not responded Monday afternoon to a request for information on the funding source for her travel to Texas this past weekend. Iowa National Guard has deployed to the U.S.-Mexico border on three other occasions since 2020 in response to a separate federal request, the governor's office said. According to the Associated Press, reporting on federal figures, arrests for illegal border crossings from Mexico reached an all-time high in December since monthly numbers have been released. The Border Patrol tallied 249,785 arrests on the Mexican border in December, up 31 percent from 191,112,000 in November and up 13 percent from 222,018 in December 2022, the previous all-time high, the AP reported. Reynolds, as she has on multiple occasions in the past, excoriated the Biden administration's effort of border security, enforcement of border security policies, for which she blamed the influx of illegal border crossings. Biden has said there are limitations on what the president can accomplish without congressional action. Asked Monday to comment after the news conferences, the White House pointed to remarks Biden made January 30th to reporters. I've done all I can do. Just give me the power. I've asked from the very day I got into office, give me the Border Patrol. Give me the people. Give me the people, the judges. Give me the people who can stop this and make it work right, Biden said. Border security legislation is being considered in the U.S. Senate, but Reynolds declined when asked Monday to call for its passage, instead reiterating that she believes the Biden administration should be stronger in its enforcement of immigration policy. She also expressed doubt that the Republican-led U.S. House and Democrat-led U.S. Senate would reach an agreement. Both political parties are guilty and not coming to the table, sitting down and having an adult conversation about what we do moving forward, Reynolds said. I don't have a lot of confidence in, no disrespect to the people that serve out in Washington, D.C. I'm grateful for them, but listen, 
in this environment, I don't have a lot of confidence in really too much getting done. Now it's time to do today's obituaries. <clears throat> First, we remember Nancy Beverly Moen, age 90, of Mason City, who died Tuesday, January the 30th, 2024, at Country Meadow Place, following a nine-year struggle with dementia. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, February the 10th, 2024, at Major Erickson Funeral Home, 111 North Pennsylvania Avenue, Mason City. Interment will follow in the Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be held one hour prior to service time at the funeral home. Memorials may be directed to St. Croix Hospice. Next, we remembered Dr. Charlene Bell, age 93, who passed away on January the 30th, 2024, at Calvin Community in Des Moines. Charlene was the daughter of Harlan and Leela Fuller of York, Nebraska, born on August 23rd, 1930. Dr. Bell was a psychologist, consultant to business, industry, education, and medical groups, motivational speaker nationally and internationally, author, adjunct lecturer at four state universities. Dr. Bell was a former psychologist to the Mason City School District and the Area Education Agency and residing in Clear Lake. A private family service will be held. A memorial gathering with family and friends will be held from 6 to 8 p.m. Thursday, April 18, 2024 at Isles Dunn's Chapel, Des Moines. In lieu of flowers, memorials can be made to the charity of choice in Charlene's memory. Condolences can be expressed at www.islescares.com. Now, <clears throat> now we remember Betty Jean Griman Hegginger, former Sheffield resident who passed away in Story City, Iowa on February the 1st, 2024. A memorial service will be held this spring to celebrate her life. Notification of the service will be shared at a later date. Memorials may be sent to Betty's daughter, Brenda Silverman, 11515 Creek Crossing, San Antonio, Texas, 78253. And we remember Elaine Rourke, age 68, of Mason City, who died Friday, January the 26th, 2024, at Mercy One Medical Center, Des Moines. Services 2 p.m. Friday, February 9th, 2024. Visitation one hour prior at Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel, 126 3rd Street, Northeast Mason City. Hogan Bremer Moore Colonial Chapel is handling arrangements and they can be reached at area code 641-423-2372. And one quick sports article before we move on to the Fort Dodge Messenger. Mason City alum Meyer returns to play with Drake. It's written by Ethan Petrick of the, of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Megan Meyer could not help but feel nervous. The nerves did not reach the same level at, as the first time she checked into a game at Carver-Hawkeye Arena as a member of Iowa or her first time checking in at the Knapp Center after transferring to Drake in 2021. Yet, the Mason City product felt nervous as she crouched next to the scorer's table in the McLeod Center in Cedar Falls on Saturday night. It was an excited nervous as Meyer waited to check in for the first time in over a year after a knee injury ended her season prematurely after eight games in 2022-2023. I was ultimately super excited to take the court again, Meyer said. Playing basketball your whole life and then having to end with an injury and not being able to really finish my career on the court, I am just so thankful and excited to get the opportunity to do that. Meyer checked into the contest against Northern Iowa with 23 seconds remaining in the first quarter. 
After just over a minute on the court, Meyer replaced her nerves with confidence as she caught an inbounds pass from Taylor McCauley in the corner and launched a three-pointer as the UNI defender closed late. Five months earlier, when the Bulldogs tipped off the 2023-2024 season with an exhibition game against Upper Iowa, Meyer's basketball career was decidedly over. After four years of college basketball, two at Iowa and two at Drake, Meyer elected to forego a final year of eligibility granted by the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a really long decision and I delayed it for as long as possible, Meyer said, and I ultimately decided to move on. But as a competitor, I knew how much I was going to miss name and miss competing because that is something that just sits with me. Following an engagement to former Iowa linebacker and Detroit Lions first-round selection Jack Campbell, Meyer moved to the Motor City to pursue life after college. However, as she watched her former team and the college basketball season tip off, Meyer felt the call to return. Once basketball season started and I was watching games, I was like, gosh, I wish I could go back on the court one more time. I just miss it so much, Meyer said. I felt like I had more to give. I did not want to have to go out not knowing when I was playing my last game or go out on an injury. I just felt the urge to compete again. With a year of eligibility remaining from COVID and another year potentially available via medical hardship waiver, Meyer started to consider returning to basketball next season or taking a year at another university. Then, TCU stunned the college basketball world when its women's basketball program forfeited games against Kansas State and Iowa State due to a lack of scholarship players available. According to Meyer, her fiancé Campbell returned home from work around this time and encouraged her to reach out to the Horned Frogs, who were holding open tryouts in an attempt to bolster their roster. Within 10 minutes of reaching out, Meyer said she received a call from TCU. I was going to go down to Dallas, Meyer said, and joined their team because they needed players. However, logistics caused the plan to fall through and left Meyer back at square one without a team to play for. During a phone call with Drake assistant coach Nikki Hayes Fort, Meyer discussed her ill-fated attempt to return to college basketball. I was just like, I wish I could finish this season with Drake. I would much rather do that, Meyer said. Then she is like, well, that is a possibility. It just kind of fell into place from there. After a handful of conversations with Pullman, Meyer returned to Des Moines and rejoined the Bulldogs with 11 games remaining in the season. It was like she never left. During the two practices she got before returning to the court on Saturday, Meyer said she fell right back into the routine of playing and compared it to riding a bike. I told a lot of people that it felt like I did not even leave, Meyer said. I just walked back into the gym and the last chapter of my life just blurred over because I was back. I feel like I picked up on the plays pretty quickly. I just felt super comfortable right away. Sitting next to Katie Dinnebeer, junior forward Anna Miller did not know what news was coming. Dinnebeer knew of Meyer's impending return but managed to keep the secret just long enough for Pullman to break the news to the team. I was like, what? Megan is coming back? Miller said. I was speechless. I was stammering. I think for, I do not even know how long of a time. I was just like, what? Megan? For like 20 minutes after. I was so excited. I was surprised too, but very happy that she was back. According to Pullman, the entire team matched Miller's stunned excitement. Megan has been in our locker room, Pullman said. She has been a part of our team. I really wish Megan could have felt that moment that we shared with our own team that I share with them that she was choosing to come back and join us for the remainder of the season. 
If you could imagine the excitement level and take that times 1,000 was really the look on their faces. Being able to just welcome a quality person as Megan is, but then her skill set really matches what we do. It is only a matter of time. Megan is not a patient person, but it's going to be a short amount of time where we are kind of back in the groove and you will see a lot more Megan Meyer. Meyer's shot swished through the basket, ending a 9-0 UNI run and putting the Bulldogs back in front by 11. Her nerves were gone, replaced by the same confidence she had had her whole career. I feel like shooting is, again, like riding a bike, Myers said. It just comes back pretty fast, and I have a lot shot a lot of threes in my life, so it was good to be able to get that first one to fall. I think I blacked out a little bit. Drake head coach Allison Pullman joked that Meyer became so excited for her first back basket that she forgot what defense the Bulldogs were in as she raced back down the court with her right arm extended and three fingers in the air. Meyer laughed. She could not deny her excitement to be back on the court. I feel nothing but gratitude that I am able to step back on the court with this team and this coaching staff, Meyer said. These really are my best friends. It is so fun to be back and find any way I can contribute. You are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. And now we turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger. And our top story is entitled Public Areas Department Proposed in Fort Dodge. It will consolidate maintenance chores. It's written by Bill Shea. In Fort Dodge, there are places and situations in which the city's development services department is responsible for mowing the grass and shoveling the snow. However, that department doesn't own a mower, a shovel, or a snowblower. A new agency called the Public Areas Department has been proposed to take care of all city properties and relieve other departments, such as development services, of the need to figure out how to get things done that don't really seem like part of their main mission. Assistant City Manager Ryan Mayo said Monday that implementing this new agency would actually save money by bringing maintenance work in-house, eliminating the need to hire contractors. He added that it will allow other city departments to do what they should be doing instead of mowing grass and shoveling snow. We're excited for it, he said. The concept of the Public Areas Department was introduced in the City Council Monday evening during a budget workshop. In the fiscal year that begins July 1st, it would have a proposed budget of $2,387,519. The new department would be in charge of these tasks, parks maintenance, custodial services, streetscape maintenance, upkeep and operation of the cemeteries, and forestry work. It would be staffed by transferring employees from other city departments, most notably the Parks, Recreation, and Forestry Department. That department has an eight-member Parks and Forestry crew, which would become the nucleus of the new agency. The new department will provide seamless and improved services for all. The growth we're seeing, said Lori Branderhorst, the Director of Parks and Recreation and Forestry. Mail said the plan is for the new department to start operating in April. None of the council members commented on the planned public areas department. Also on Monday, the council reviewed these budget proposed budgets. The fire department, a proposed budget of $3,743,016. 
Iowa Municipal Police and Fire Retirement Systems Contributions, proposed budget of $1,471,907. Social Security slash Iowa Public Employee Retirement System, proposed budget of $1,196,733. Ambulance, proposed budget $1,131,476. The ambulance service is provided by the fire department, but it has a separate budget because it is paid for with fees. Employee health and life insurance proposed budget of $2,787,782. Lakeside Municipal Golf Course proposed budget $636,670. Harlan and Hazel Rogers Sports Complex proposed budget $495,577. The complex north of the city has softball, baseball, and soccer fields. General Administration's proposed budget is $397,200. Rosedale Rapids Aquatic Center slash Splash Pad proposed budget of $411,846. Dart Bus proposed budget of $262,000. Community Recreation proposed budget of $238,017. Information Technology, proposed budget of $175,000. City Clerk's Office, proposed budget of $213,150. Mayor and City Manager's Office, proposed budget $153,381. Human Resources, proposed budget $90,359. Legal Services, proposed budget $30,000. And City Council, proposed budget $18,956. Our next story is entitled, Supervisors to Consider Essential EMS Resolution. This is written by L.B. Wingert. Emergency medical services could soon be considered essential in Webster County, Today, the Webster County Board of Supervisors is considering the first reading of a resolution to declare EMS an essential service in the county. In Iowa, police and fire departments are considered essential services and by law are funded through taxes. However, emergency medical services are not considered essential statewide, though individual counties can establish EMS as an essential service and set up a tax levy specifically to fund EMS. Currently, Webster County is not one of those counties. Ensuring efficient and effective EMS coverage is essential for maintaining the health and welfare of Webster County residents, according to the resolution. The resolution must go through three readings before the supervisors can vote to adopt it. If the resolution is adopted, it will allow the supervisors to put on the next election ballot a question asking voters to approve a property tax levy of $0.75 cents per $1,000 taxable value to be used exclusively for EMS in Webster County. A vote to implement an EMS levy must pass with at least 60% yes votes. The supervisors will consider the resolution during a special meeting today at 10 a.m. at the Webster County Courthouse. A public hearing on the resolution will also be held during the meeting. And in our final story from the front page of The Messenger today, former Iowa State Ag Secretary Bill Northey dies at age 64. This is written by Jared Strong of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. Bill Northey, who was Iowa's top agriculture official for more than a decade and a leader at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, died recently at the age of 64. His death was publicly announced Monday by the Agribusiness Association of Iowa, of which he was chief executive. Bill was a tireless advocate for agriculture and a beloved leader, the association said. 
The association spokesperson said Northey died suddenly but did not know the cause of death. Funeral arrangements are pending. Northey, a longtime farmer, was Iowa's Agriculture Secretary from 2007 to 2018, after which he was Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the USDA until 2021. He was an Iowa State University graduate who was raised on a farm in Dickinson County, according to the association. He was president of the National Corn Growers Association in the mid-1990s and a decade later was first elected Agriculture Secretary for Iowa. Bill was a great leader whose work ethic and passion for Iowa agriculture was unmatched, Governor Kim Reynolds said in a statement. Iowans and farmers around the country were fortunate to have such a rock-solid advocate and friend. Reynolds ordered flags at half-staff until after Northey's funeral. Numerous public officials and agriculture groups heaped praise on Northey on Monday. U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack said, Bill's colleagues, the Iowa agriculture community, and so many who knew him will feel the absence of such a passionate, knowledgeable, and devoted leader for a long time to come. Mike Nag, the current state agriculture secretary, said, As secretary, he had a tremendously positive impact on our state and the Iowa Department of Agriculture and land stewardship. But his influence went well beyond our borders, whether it was on issues like soil conservation, water quality, renewable energy, foreign animal disease preparedness, or trade. Bill was respected nationally and internationally. Bill was smart, and people looked toward his leadership on every issue he focused on. U.S. Senator Chuck Grassley said, Today, the Iowa farm community lost a giant. Bill Northey was a dear friend and fierce advocate for the family farmer. As Iowa's Secretary of Agriculture and Undersecretary for Farm Production and Conservation at the United States Department of Agriculture under President Trump, Bill's commitment to agriculture, biofuels, and conservation were unmatched. Iowa Farm Bureau Federation said the Iowa Farm Bureau is saddened to learn of the passing of Bill Northey, a tireless champion, defender, and promoter of farmers and agriculture at both the state and federal levels. His steadfast dedication and life's work to ensuring agriculture thrives will continue to impact farm families here in Iowa and across the nation for years to come. And U.S. Senator Joni Erst said, Bill Northey dedicated his life to Iowa agriculture. Throughout his career as a farmer, leader in key agriculture organizations, Iowa Secretary of Agriculture and U.S. Department of Agriculture Undersecretary, he was a steadfast advocate for the producers that feed and fuel our world. He helped establish Iowa as a national leader on key initiatives, including ethanol and the nutrient reduction strategy, while always remaining grounded and connected to his family farm and in being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm law. According to the United States Attorney's Office for the North District of Iowa, Joe C. Holmes, 22, of Estreville, was a passenger in a vehicle on April 1, 2023, when a traffic stop was conducted by law enforcement. The vehicle was searched after the officer smelled marijuana coming from inside the vehicle. During the search, the officer found marijuana and a 9mm pistol belonging to Holmes. According to the release, as Holmes was a marijuana user and a convicted felon, she is prohibited from possessing a firearm. Holmes pleaded guilty to the charge on September 21, 2023 and was sentenced on Thursday by U.S. District Court Chief Judge Leonard T. Strand. 
Following her 30 months in prison, Holmes must also serve three years of supervised release. She remains in custody of the United States Marshal until she can be transported to a federal prison. And Fort Dodge Kindergarten Roundup is March 4th. The Fort Dodge Community School District and the Early Childhood Center announced Kindergarten Roundup details for the 2024-2025 school year. Kindergarten Roundup registration is in person at the Fort Dodge Community School District Central Office located at 109 North 25th Street. Registration begins Thursday from 3.30 to 7 p.m. and continues on Friday during regular business hours 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. The following information is required for registration to be complete. Proof of guardianship, proof of address and student age, immunization records. Kindergarten Roundup is March 4th at the Early Childhood Center, 104 South 17th Street. There will be three sessions offered and adults can sign up for the session most convenient to them. 12.30 to 2 p.m., 3 to 3.30 p.m., and 5.30 to 7 p.m. Students will get to meet kindergarten teachers and engage in activities in classrooms. Parents will get a chance to hear about kindergarten at the ECC and ask any questions they may have. For more information about the Fort Dodge Community Schools, visit www.fdschools.org or call area code 515-576-1161. Now we turn to today's obituaries and we remember Jacqueline Jack Joe Kem, age 69, of West Des Moines and formerly of Fort Dodge, who went to her, heaven, her heavenly home on Thursday, February the 1st, 2024. A celebration of life will be held at 11 a.m. on Friday, February the 9th, 2024, at Lutheran Church of Hope in West Des Moines. A visitation will take place from 10 a.m. until the time of service at the church. A private family burial will be held in Fort Dodge at a later date. Lofsweiler Funeral Home of Fort Dodge is serving the family. Memorials may be left to Hope Ministries of Des Moines in memory of Jackie. Next, we remember Dean E. Ulrich Sr., age 85, of Milford, who died peacefully Monday, January 29, 2024, surrounded by his loved ones. An intimate private family gathering will be held with burial taking place at Calvary Cemetery in Algona. Cards may be sent to Jan Ulrich, care of Oak Crest Funeral Services, P.O. Box 186, Algona, Iowa, 50511. Memorials will be distributed to Dean's favorite charities in his memory. Online condolences may be made to www.oakcrestfuneralservices.com. And we remember Myron Myron Darrell Freund, age 67, of Arlington, Texas, who passed away November the 30th, 2023, at his home. All are welcome to a remembrance and luncheon for Myron on Saturday, February 10th at 11 a.m., at Old Boston's in Fort Dodge. Interment will follow at Otho Cemetery. And we remember Savannah O. Lamb, who passed away on February the 4th, 2024, at 10 a.m. in Fort Dodge, Iowa, at the age of 96. Funeral services will be 2 p.m. Thursday, February the 8th, 2024, at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church. A visitation will be one hour prior at the church. Lofsweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. And we remember Donna Williams of Warrensburg, Missouri. Visitation on Wednesday, February the 7th, 2024, 9.30 to 10.15 a.m. at Bowman Funeral Home, www.bowmanfh.com. 
followed by the funeral at 10.30 a.m. And we remember Randy Greenfield of Camrar, visitation 5 to 8 p.m. on Thursday, February the 8th, funeral 10.30 a.m. on Friday, February the 9th, both at Community Church of Camrar. Bowman Funeral Home is handling arrangements, and again, their, their website is www.bowmanfh.com. Now we remember Rick Piper, age 76, of Fort Dodge, who passed away on Sunday, February the 4th, 2024, at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home in Fort Dodge. Services will be 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February the 8th, 2024, at the Gunderson Funeral and Chapel. Burial will be in the North Lawn Cemetery with military honors conducted by the United States Army and the VFW Post 1856. Visitation will be from 9 a.m. to 10.30 a.m. on Thursday at the Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Fort Dodge. Please visit www.gundersonfuneralhome.com to view a complete obituary or to leave an online condolence. And finally, we remember Robert Walters Jr., age 56, of Fort Dodge, Iowa, who died Thursday, February the 1st, 2024, at Unity Point Health Trinity Regional Medical Center. Services will be held Saturday, February 10th at 2 p.m. at First Church of the Nazarene in Fort Dodge. Arrangements are with historic Bruce Funeral Home of Fort Dodge. To view the complete obituary and leave online condolences for the family, please visit www.brucesfuneralhome.com. Now we turn to sports and Dodger basketball teams hit the road. It's written by Dana Becker. A pair of road dates await the Fort Dodge basketball teams this week. The Dodgers will head to longtime rival Mason City for a doubleheader on Tuesday before hitting the road to play Des Moines East Thursday night. Tip is set for 6.15 p.m. both nights. Last Friday night, the Dodger girls snapped a three-game losing skid with a 43-29 victory over Marshalltown. L.J. Mail, who earlier this season became the program's sophomore single-season scoring leader, posted 16 points and 12 rebounds and reached 500 career points in the process. Mackenzie McElrath added 13 points and 6 rebounds and 4 steals. On the year, Mail is averaging just under 16 points a night and 8 rebounds. McElrath is adding 9 points and Dakota Palmer, 6. Brooklyn Palmer is second on the team in rebounds. For the sixth-ranked Mohawks, Reggie, Reggie Spots leads the team in scoring, rebounds, and assists. Kelsey McDonough and Grace Birding, both seniors like Spots, are posting eight points a night. Plus, Mason City won for the first for the third consecutive time in the series last month, 57-47, and leads 27-4 since the year 2007. Des Moines East is paced by senior Asia Thompson as she is scoring 12.6 points a night. Roughly two weeks ago, the Scarlets fell to North Dodge 71-18, marking the sixth straight win for the Dodgers. The Fort Dodge boys have dropped two straight since a win over Waterloo East, falling to Marshalltown and Urbandale. Cade Westerhoff, a junior, is averaging 15 points and 6.5 rebounds a game. Drake Warland is at 12 points and Carter Woodruff at 8.6. Both Warland and Woodruff are also juniors. Earlier this year, the Dodgers ended an eight-game losing streak to the Mohawks, 60-55. Fort Dodge used a 20-10 first quarter and were led by Westerhoff's 18 points and 12 rebounds. 
Mason City snapped a two-game losing skid last week with a 64-37 victory over uh, Des Moines Lincoln. Sophomore Marcel Whitner and Ty Sanchez-Evans paced the Mohawks in scoring. Des Moines East fell to the Dodgers on the road earlier this year, 77-28. Jamal Taylor and Abel Michael are the leading scorers. And that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.